This episode is sponsored by GovX, a company I've used for several years now and wish I'd used for even longer. If you are a member of police, fire, EMS, corrections, nursing, a hospital setting doctor, and members of the military, and you are not registered with GovX, you are simply wasting your money. A free registration with GovX marries you with a multitude of companies that are offering our professions discount. So by registering at govx.com for free, you will then have a lifetime membership and you can shop for the very same things and save money. I've saved a huge amount of money buying sunglasses, I've bought knives, I've bought clothes, and even concert tickets on there. Another area I love about this company is GovX Gives Back, where they will raise money for different foundations every single month. And with this being September, they have a 9-11 memorial patch that raises money for firefighter aid. So if you're active duty, if you are retired, or if you're a volunteer, you are eligible for this membership. And on top of the savings that you will get by being a member, GovX is reaching out to you, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, to offer you an extra discount. If you spend 50, that's five zero dollars on your first order and use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, you will save an additional $15. So $15 off your first order of $50. So visit govx.com, G-O-V-X.com, register, and then be a member for life and continue to save over and over again. This episode is brought to you by Thorne, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorne is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements, the tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorne, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorne. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. My name is James Gearing and this is episode 350 and I am extremely excited to welcome on the show Coach Scott Colfield. Now, Coach Colfield is now the Director of Strength and Conditioning at Colorado College and was the Head of Strength and Conditioning at the NSCA. And it's under the NSCA umbrella that TSAC was created, Tactical Strength and Conditioning. Their conferences are incredible. Their training is amazing. 
So in this interview, we really got to contrast the sporting athlete with the tactical athlete. An incredible conversation I know you're going to enjoy. Before we get to that interview, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Each five-star rating really does make us more and more visible to people looking for a project like this. And then, as I mentioned, this is a free library for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you share these amazing men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. And I'm going to slide a shameless plug in. Today is September the 5th, and I finally was able to publish my book, One More Light, Life, Death, and Humanity Through the Eyes of a Firefighter. So I've taken many of the lessons that I learned through my career, coupled them with many of the things I've learned from 350 people on this podcast, and hopefully created a book and stories that will certainly lead people down rabbit holes of their own mental and physical wellness. So with that being said, I introduce to you my guest, Coach Caulfield. Enjoy. So, Coach, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast. Thanks, man. I'm really excited uh, to be asked to be on it. Uh, I've listened to a lot of episodes and know a lot of people you've had on, so uh, really thanks for the opportunity. Brilliant. Um, So the very first question, where are we finding you on planet Earth today? (laughs) I am uh, in my backyard, actually, today, uh, right in Colorado Springs, Colorado about 6,000 feet of elevation. Uh, It's one of the uh, 64-ish days that aren't sunshine today. (laughs) Brilliant. Yeah, I've heard you speak very, very highly of it. Were you you born there? No, nope. Uh, I've been here for about a decade, uh, moved here for a job at the NSCA headquarters, um, but it's definitely the best climate I've ever lived in. Um, I grew up in Vermont, which is, you know, pretty far back east um but i always tell people that colorado is just like a bigger version of vermont so it was a good training for the previous life <laughs> yes yeah well, i've been to burlington the only place in vermont i've been yeah. to but uh, yeah yeah i can great, see the common com- uh, similarities between the two yep everything's just a little bigger and better here <laughs> <laughs> all right well then speaking of early life so um what did your mom and dad do and, and how many siblings did you have uh, I'm the only one who broke the mold, man, or, or something, or maybe they just realized I was too much of a handful. Um, <laughs> but uh, my dad actually worked for uh, Massachusetts Law Enforcement uh, Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals in law enforcement uh, for 47 years before he retired. Um, he was a law enforcement officer, so he'd go on uh, calls where people were abusing animals, and so I got to uh, tag along a lot with him uh, all throughout his career, which was pretty cool. Um, and my mom was a, an educator and a coach. She was actually a basketball coach. So, you know, I think my coaching genes really came from her um, and just getting dragged around to gyms when I was very small and, you know, had to kind of play on the sideline and get to hang out with the athletes that she was training. A uh, big influence on, you know, what I ended up doing in my life. Brilliant. Well, back to your dad just for a moment. Um, my dad was a vet, veterinarian, so I used to go on call with him too and watch him treat animals. So what are some of the things that you remember from that? And, and, and you know, what are some of the things that, that would shock people seeing behind the scenes of some of the ways animals are treated? 
Oh man, it was t- it was horrible, you know. Uh, I mean, I do. I remember we we'd go check in on like uh, you know some of his calls would just be checking in on complaints that would people would make about um, pet stores or different things. But you know, from time to time, you'd get a a complaint about a neighborhood or somewhere that you know a dog or animal was left outside and you know, chained with, with literally maybe a chain around its neck, not a collar, um, you know, open wounds and, and just horrible conditions that people would leave these animals in. And, and thankfully, um, you know, his job was to prosecute people and take them to court for treating animals like that. And what does he think about this uh, current climate? When I say climate, obviously, we're being told a lot of extremes. We're not being told, I think, you know, the middle ground, the most sensible people. But being a man who served law enforcement for 40 years, you know, a, an environment where humans weren't even really in the in the equation, he was helping animals. Um, have you had a chance to talk to him about what's going on now and what his uh, perception is? Yeah, I mean, a little bit. Like I said, I mean, he came up, at, you know, in such some, I mean, he, you know, was starting out in the 60s and 70s and he's been through, you know, some of the most intense, you know, um, times in our history, um, you know, but you know, one just from his work, you know, one of his best friends and partners um, was a black man, and and they're still great friends to get today. And you know, I know that you know they know that there's not um, any one size fits all solution to this, um, and that there's good people and bad people in every profession. Um, and I think that that's really the you know the important underlying factor in the whole thing. Yeah, I agree completely. I think physical standards are definitely a way of weeding out some of the bad people too, and I want to get to that in a little bit. Totally. Yeah. All right. Then, well, obviously, you know, you had a coach mother, but what about you as far as a sportsman? When you were when you were younger, what were your favorite sports you played? Yeah, I played. Uh, I actually played soccer and basketball pretty much my whole life. I, I really played basketball more than anything for the longest period of time. Um, although I like to. I like to tell people or joke around really that, you know, powerlifting and strongman ruined my basketball career because once I got into the strength sports and put on 20 pounds of muscle, uh, the the skill and touch that I needed for basketball was just not there anymore. But I played that all through high school, uh, into college. Uh, My first job out of high school, actually, when I was 18, I graduated from high school and uh, a guy who actually had coached against us. he kind of recruited me to take this summer job at the Hall of Fame basketball camp at Montclair State in New Jersey. Um, and that was my first job uh, right out of high school. I worked as a summer basketball camp counselor for those two summers after high school. Uh, so, I mean, I really literally started coaching when I was 18 years old. Brilliant. What do you think of uh, um, the camp counselor life? Because I did that for six years <laughs> in upstate New York. I loved it personally. Yeah, it was a great gig. Yeah, I mean, we, we you know, we coach and run stations and drills all day long and then at night uh, you know probably similar to your experience we'd play pickup uh at night and so it was just a great opportunity to play against people better than me and, and really get better at bat, at my sport as well um, and get to help you know little kids get better and improve so it was so fun i you know i think that I mean, granted, this is dating myself. You know, I graduated high school in 1989. I think my the first summer I made $125 a week, um, 
And then I think the second summer we got bumped up to like 175. So it's pretty funny to look back and think about those checks, you know. But but you're living you're living there and eating there, and you really don't have any time to spend any money. So it was great. <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. I loved it. Absolutely loved it. Um, okay. So then, working way through through school, what were your career aspirations when you were young? Uh, you know, when I was younger and uh, first thinking about going um, out of high school, you know, I was really thinking about getting into law enforcement, honestly, because my dad, again, worked for the uh, Mass Society for French School of the Animals. My uncle was a Boston police officer. He just uh, retired a few years ago with close to 40 years. Um, so I really leaned toward that. Um, although at just some point along the way, um, you know, physical fitness and physical training were always part of my life. And that kind of passion and that aspect took over. Um, and actually, uh, so I wasn't a great student, I will say that as well. So I went to college for a couple of years, um, kind of, you know, again, was law enforcement and then kind of checked, transferred to general studies. Uh, actually, after my second year, I had chosen to, to skip most of my classes and head to the gym more often than go to class. So my grades weren't great. And I ended up joining the Navy at that point. Um, instead of going back to school, it's probably the best thing that ever happened to me. Um, because it definitely, uh, made me, you know, more responsible, better leader. Uh, you know, just so many great things, discipline, attention to detail, so many things that you learn in the military that are helpful and life lessons that still, you know, hold true today. Yeah. Now, what, what was your position in the military? Uh, it was directing aircraft. So kind of like you see the guys on Top Gun launching jets off of the flight deck. So that was what I did, except I was on a amphibious assault ship, which was a uh, LPH for any of those Navy folks listening in, um, which they don't actually have anymore. Um, they've shifted the amphibious fleet to a different type of, um, ship, but we, so we'd deploy, we had about 600, uh, ships crew, and then we'd pick up about 1200 Marines when we deployed, um, and off to do fun stuff, drop them on the beach and pick them up so they could do their job. Very cool. So what made you decide to transition back out of the military? Yeah, I mean, I kind of went in with the mindset that I was really going to get the GI Bill and go back to school. That was that was really my primary thought going into it. Um, and again, the the rating that I had, uh, aviation boatswain's mate, the AB rating. Uh, there's a lot of sea time that that you have to earn to really make rate in there, and I just didn't see myself wanting to be uh, attached to a ship and being away from, you know home wherever that might be uh for for that long of a time so you know i kind of went in with with like i'm gonna do my best at this job but you know in four years when i'm done i'm gonna get back into college and really do my best to um you know get my degree and and get into this other field right so then walk me through um the journey back from from the military to the beginning of your coaching career yeah, so I got out of the military, um, and again, I was, it was definitely eyes were set on going back to school. Um, I took my time. I, I enjoyed my uh, kind of took a summer off, and again, just you know, I was still I was lifting weights. I was doing you know my fitness stuff from the as a practitioner on myself. Um, I was bartending and playing a lot of men's league and pick up hoops at that time. 
Um, and, and then about a year later I ended up, uh, I had met some, some guys through basketball, uh, and some other coaching opportunities that I had who were at a place called Castleton, uh, which is in Southern Vermont. And, uh, I ended up deciding to go back to school there. Um, and they had a physical education degree, which actually had, um, a non-teaching option. So you could have, could have done an extra year and become a certified teacher. But, you know, I chose to do more of the exercise science, anatomy and physiology, nutrition, um, motor learning type classes and, and kind of head into that fitness realm with that PE degree. Right. And then where did that lead you as far as, um, collegiate athletics and then, uh, NSCA? Yeah, really. So really, I mean, I've done a, honestly a little bit of everything that you could possibly do in the fitness and, and strength training world. Um, I actually, so I graduated with that um, with that physical education degree, and I was actually just working part time at a gym at the time, um, and and some other jobs, bartending and again doing some other stuff. Um, so I was just working the floor as a fitness, you know, kind of helper, like helping people set up equipment, checking people in. Um, and the general manager of the club at that time, you know, realized that I was extremely passionate that I was into this. This was something that, you know, he thought I could be good at. And he basically, you know, made me a financial offer that would allow me to quit the other jobs and just work at the gym full time. Um, and that really just again snowballed with my passion and my, uh, interest in the field, um, became a certified personal trainer. I moved up to becoming the head, head personal trainer and then the head fitness director, um, of a couple of different clubs in central Vermont. Um, and then that at that time, I was also, again, really getting interested in training athletes. So I knew, you know, I knew the correlation for my own fitness and my own athletic ability, how much it helped me. Um, and I started kind of figuring out, all right, well, I could do this for other athletes, you know. So I had, a, you know, a few individual athletes that I worked with and really had great opportunities to build some great relationships with them. Um, and then I was just trying to figure out, okay, how do I keep this going? So I started an actual like summer strength and conditioning camp for youth athletes. Um, it was for kids age 13 to 18, basically middle school to high school. So I was kind of making my own niche at this, uh, commercial gym to, so that I would end up just training athletes basically. Um, somewhere in that time, uh, I actually was doing like a, a kind of a, you know, intro to, training or fitness class for like some third and fourth graders and one of the people one of the parents that was actually in that room was the head rugby coach at Norwich University which is the oldest military university in the United States um, he came up to me after his name is Bob Legler and he said hey um, you know I really like what you're doing here he said what do you, you think you could do this with a group of about 50 rugby athletes and and this is full disclosure I had no idea I don't think I had ever even seen rugby at the time um, but I was like, yeah, you know, totally. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, that, that led, uh, to having a great relationship with this guy, such a phenomenal coach. Um, and he really trained, he really educated me on rugby and positions and different, you know, the energy systems and movements that are required in that sport. Um, and we had a great relationship and I, I worked with his rugby athletes for about three or four years. Um, and again, like I said, it's, it's all continuing to snowball at this time. So I'm, you know, now I realized after working with those college athletes, like, okay, 
this is this is where it's at. You know, this is where I need to be, and this is this is the the level of athletes that I really want to work with. Um, very developmental still. You know, a lot of college athletes are not great weightlifters, right? They're they're great. A lot of them are great athletes. They not didn't necessarily come to college to lift weights though. So you know, I saw a lot of opportunity to help people develop and and improve at their sport, um, and that again being in that position with my fitness connections and then with my rugby connections with him, um, I had met some other people through an NSCA state clinic, um, who ran a gym in, uh, Lebanon, New Hampshire, which is right next to where Dartmouth college is located. Uh, and I ended up taking a job down there to run a sports performance center in a private facility. Um, but I used that connection to reach out to their Dartmouth rugby coach, whose name is Alexander Magleby. Um, great guy, played for the Eagles for the USA. Um, phenomenal coach. And Dartmouth rugby is one of the top rugby programs in the United States. Um, powerhouse in the Ivy League and, and overall. And so got to go down there and be the strength coach for that team. And, and that just led to more opportunities at Dartmouth. Um, that was the first team I worked with. After that, I ended up taking on a volunteer position with Dartmouth football for about a year. Um, and then they started giving me more responsibility and then they gave me the swimming, uh, men's women's swimming team as well onto that. So, you know, again, I, you know, I think, uh, just being able to be in the right place, right time, but, you know, but have the right experience to take it kind of to the next level for lack of a better word. And that was kind of how it worked. You know, I was stepping up in each of those jobs to, to bigger and better opportunities. Right now, before we get to NSCA, what what I'm curious about having I went I went to University of North London way way back in '96 and did a sports science um, class there. I think it was called sports science and fitness evaluation, I believe, was the title. And then years and years later, I just graduated a couple of years ago. I went to University of Florida and finished off that because that was a two year in England. Finished off my bachelor's in ex phys here, and. In the meantime, I've been an athlete, I've been a coach, you know, not, not a high level coach by any means, but exposed to coaching. Um, and I realized that, that in some of the paths that I personally have been on, there was almost a disconnection between my impression of where these college classes were going to take me and the certificates I was going to have and, and the qualifications I was going to have to then go on and be a better athlete and a coach. And, you know, the other side, which seemed to be what I did end up with a lot of times was pretty much the road to the masters and the road to going teaching at the same faculty that I, that I studied at. So what has been your view of the educational route in, in the ex-phys, um, uh, journey in the US and or in the UK, if you're exposed to that versus the tools that someone actually needs to, to be a good coach? You know, is, is there a good parallel or there are some things we could do better? Yeah. I mean, that's such a great point. And it's so, you know, I think there's more, we're seeing a lot more programs, um, that mention being applied in, in their curriculum. And I think that's important because so much of the education and and science and, and I'm not knocking science and exercise science you have to know the scientific uh, principles and physiology um, to to be effective but at the same time you know you really are gonna you really start learning 
what you really need to know when you're on the job. So it's like your degree and certification are kind of the bare minimum like qualifications that it's like, okay, you know enough right now that you probably won't hurt anyone. But like when you get into that first real work setting, whether it's volunteering or inter interning, like you, you, you didn't learn in any of your exercise uh, science curriculum how to manage a group of 100 football athletes all at the same time and, and how that flows to get everybody in and out of there in 55 minutes, um, warmed up, have a good, safe, effective workout, you know? So I think that there's a lot of room, um, for the application piece. And, and I do think, uh, you know, I can really only speak to the United States. I think we're seeing more programs, um, that are utilizing that, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of really good programs out there are tying in the strength and conditioning department, the strength and conditioning coaches to help with whether again, it's internship or even we call them practicums. Um, I'm a, I'm actually an adjunct professor for a advanced strength and conditioning class here at the university of Colorado at Colorado Springs. Um, and they have a master's degree. And so, they have practicums where it's more like shadowing where they're going and observing. But, you know, those opportunities to see the real deal of what it's actually like and that you didn't read in a book, you know, you realize that there's a lot of differences between um, what happens in the book and then what happens when you actually get on the floor and you're thrown into it and like this is your group. So, again, you know, my again, my experience like yours from, from coaching at a young age as a camp counselor, I think really helped me, um, you know, when I jumped back into the strength and conditioning world, cause I already understood running groups and, and organization and having a practice plan. And, you know, I were, I was lucky that I worked with some great basketball coaches who actually, you know, whether they knew it or not, you know, had a good influence on my, my strength and conditioning career. That's very interesting. Yeah, I've never even thought about that because I did. Yeah, I taught martial arts and water sports was with the ones that I did on that camp, but I'd never looked at that as to kind of helping with my coaching more recently. But um, so then, just just to give another another observation from the generation you and I grew up in versus you know where you see yourself now. Um, what was, what did your coaching or your, your, uh, strength and conditioning look like when you were that young athlete versus now? Me personally, I, I seem to be exposed to a lot of bodybuilding style movements when I was younger and that, that kind of, um, reverse engineering has only happened the yeah. last few years <laughs> to undo some of the things I was taught. Yeah. So, so what about yourself? Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. I think a lot of us grew up, you know, with muscle and fitness, uh, <laughs> Joe Weider principles, uh, and, and a lot of that was the only thing we knew about. Um, you know, I did too. I was fortunate that a friend of mine from high school was a few years younger than me. Her dad was a, um, kind of old, old guy, world class power lifter though. And so I, you know, I did get exposed uh, in high school to some, really fundamental basic strength training from this guy who was a world-class power lifter um and and but then you know my own training did take uh as i went off into the military and, and you know did my own thing we didn't really train my first couple of years in college and playing basketball um it was much more bodybuilding esque than anything um and then in the military it was very much like that um but again still playing basketball a lot and and still maintaining that level of athleticism but you know when I kind of got out and started 
delving into athletics and sports and learning more about the NSCA and, and CSCS certification specifically, you know, I, I met the right people and, and that kind of were able to introduce me to, Hey, this is Olympic weightlifting. And, you know, this has a lot of application to athletes. So then at that point I, I had to go and seek out an Olympic weightlifting coach and, you know, had to, like you said, I was having to undo a lot of bad habits that, you know, that, that, training by body parts had had uh, instilled in me um, to become a better weightlifter yeah see mine was trial by fire just seeing what was actually working on the fire ground as a fireman you know the the old ones just didn't seem to translate now when i was at uf my very first semester one of my classes i forget what they titled it but actually was the prep class for the cscs um, and that to this day is still the most pertinent class I've taken. So it's funny because that was actually an NSCA class basically. So how did you find them? And then tell me, you know, what it was like when you were suddenly in that world where strength and conditioning was kind of redefined. Yeah, I think, you know, I, again, I was doing stuff more on the commercial fitness side, um, with different, uh, stuff things for our actual gym but like some master trainer type stuff and and um you know i had i had met somebody though who basically had said hey if you want to train athletes you need to look at the cscs certification um and so that was me and then that was just me and this is probably 2002 2003 um starting to dig into the figure out you know looking at the website and seeing the description of the CSCS and, and realizing, okay, oh, this is specific to athletes and training athletes in a team setting. So that led me down that rabbit hole, just trying to learn as much as I could and, you know, reading the book. And, um, I really, you know, I met, uh, I didn't, I'm trying to think of 2003. I really kind of, so I went down the certification path really first. Um, I ended up getting certified and then I jumped into starting to go to like the NSCA national conference. Um, and again, at about that time too, you know, people had told me, Hey, if you want to get experience, you should try and volunteer somewhere. Um, so I'd reached out to the university of Vermont, a guy named Paul Goodman was the head strength coach there. Um, still one of my great friends and mentors to this day. He's actually been, uh, with the Chicago Blackhawks as their strength coach since 2006 when he left Vermont. So he's had a pretty darn good run there with three Stanley Cups and amazing athletes. Um, and so, you know, he definitely showed me the ropes of what it's like in a college setting. Um, but that was, again, that's another snowball effect, you know, going into an organization just from a national conference or stuff like that. And I just met a few people, uh, you know, who – and this has been my experience in the, in the organization of the NSCA my whole career is that people just were super welcoming and willing to help you um, get to the next level, whatever that means. They, they welcomed me to stick around and go hang out with them and have a drink after the sessions were over, to chat it up with them in the hallway in between sessions. Um, answering probably, you know, what would I would say or probably some of the dumbest questions I, you know, that I had no idea about. Um, so that was a really great experience. Um, again, some of those people, uh, were heavily involved with the organization back then. Some still are, some are off to different things. And so that was kind of something that really, you know, made me want to give back as well and, and help people who are interested in this career field. Brilliant. All right. So then, um, 
as you progress through now, what would you say are some of the the areas where um, the way we were taught when we were younger um, are, are the most different? So what were what some of the things that you changed about your own training and kind of had aha moments in, in the strength and conditioning side of now 2020 versus 1990? Well, you know, I mean, I think, I mean, Olympic weightlifting has been around for a long time. I mean, I don't think though, I think, you know, using those type of movements for athletic performance was a light, light bulb to me, um, getting more, you know, more involved with, uh, specific energy system development, you know, again, um, just coming from a sport background side, you know, I, I, you just did drills or did things because, may have learned them from other people I didn't necessarily know the whys behind them so you know when I learned more about energy systems that gave me a lot more um, perspective on certain sports and and what works better for different sports and certain sports so I think that was really important Um, speed training for sure to speed mechanics you know that kind of stuff that I really didn't know about um, to 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 be able to adjust certain things that could, you know, help people run more efficiently and faster and, and again, train the right way for that sport. Right. Now, you ultimately became the head of strength and conditioning for the whole of the NSCA, which you know, I just want to underline that for everyone listening, the kind of <laughs> kind of authority <laughs> that we're talking to here. Um, I want to touch on TSAC and then get back to more comparisons of your own your own journey, because yours is definitely be more with the, with the, the uh, sporting athletes. But I think there's a lot of parallels we can explore. But for people listening, tell me about the uh, the creation of TSAC and what it actually is. Yeah, so, you know, I was fortunate, like you said, to be at the NSCA headquarters. Um, I was the head strength coach there um, from the middle of 2011 until I left in last August um, for the new job that I'm at now. But um, the tactical program, um, again, tactical strength and conditioning was relatively new um, in the early 2000s, and and it was born at the NSCA headquarters. So um, actually, the the strength and conditioning coaches that were there, Mark Stevenson, some others, um, were approached by a guy named Thor Ellis, um, Thor Eels, sorry, and he was the chief of. Uh, he was actually, I think, ahead of the. Colorado Springs SWAT team at the time, tactical enforcement unit, and he was looking for a way to reduce injuries because they had had guys that had, you know, had back injuries or different issues and they had lost time at work. So he had actually reached out to Mark and was, you know, kind of like, hey, do you think you guys could help? And and these, you know, these guys at that time were coming from a primarily sporting background. Uh, Mark had worked at URI with hockey before the NSEA, um, but he and Thor, um, and actually Thor, I believe is the, uh, and I don't know his exact title, but he is the head of the NTOA now, National Tactical Officer Association. Um, and he still lives here in the spring. So those two, you know, kind of created this TSAC or what they call tactical program now, um, from the ground up. And the, and the, the way they started it was on the SWAT guys, the, the TEU guys were their guinea pigs. Um, and it, and it was huge. They, they trained them like athletes. Um, they stopped training them like bodybuilders or letting them train like bodybuilders, you know, cause at that time they were just working out in gyms themselves. Um, not with any strength coaches. Um, and so that program really took off, 
it grew. Um, we were very fortunate that the Colorado Springs SWAT team uh, was our primary, you know, they were the main team that we had there. Um, and again, that was, so that marks time, you know, as early 2000s. I'm there, I start in 2011, and that's still one of the best and most, um, you know, consistent teams that we had there. Um, at some point, again, during my time at NSCA, uh, our tactical manager had left, and so I was served as the interim tactical head strength coach as well for a while with our SWAT guys. Um, and that was just a great experience. You know, we're, we're very fortunate that um, those guys are just awesome human beings, and you know, their job is so difficult. And, you know, and that's, I think, where some of the differences come in between training sporting athletes and tactical athletes, you know, is, is these guys might get called out for uh, a kidnapping or a hostage situation or, you know, whatever uh, by bus that they're having to go after that might happen in the middle of a session. Um, and it's not like a sporting athlete where, you know, winning or losing is their game. You know, their game is life or death um, and being fully prepared for that. Yeah, no, I agree. And just, just as a side note, I've been to the TSAC conference now, I think it's three times because they came to Orlando a lot. And I want to give credit to one of my fellow firefighters in my last department, Brian Asselford, for introducing us to, to NSCN and TSAC specifically. But, um, what is your perception or, or your kind of philosophy on the tactical professions viewing themselves as athletes. I know that some people are like, oh, they're not athletes. This is the definition. But I think personally, I think that we do need to look at that lens or, you know, call it what you want, but because of the demand that's required of us, especially from zero to a hundred. So what, what's your, uh, your philosophy on, on how a tactical professional should view themselves physically? Yeah, I, I absolutely think they're athletes and, and granted their, you know, their events or their uh, sporting movements, for lack of a better term, are just different than your than your college athletes or professional athletes. But um, they're they're every bit of as, as much an athlete and they and they need all of the different attributes that athletes need speed, power, core strength, uh, you know, flexibility, mobility, dynamic mobility, energy system development specific right to their sport you know i mean our, our swat guys are are would rarely you know have to to run any sort of distance right you know they're they're weighed down in a ridiculous amount of tactical gear and, and more often than not they're kicking a door down and, and if someone runs they're not chasing after them they're gonna have a dog to send after them um so you know that having a test like a mile and a half or three mile run just is silly. It doesn't make you know it doesn't have any application to their job. Um, that was another great partnership with NSCA was they were able to change the testing standards for the CSPD tactical enforcement unit. Um, we got rid of sit ups. We went to plank test. Um, they had they had uh, they had probably one of the tougher physical fitness tests than I've ever seen. Um, so I'm trying to I'll try and remember the battery for you guys that are listening to. Um, and I know a lot of other departments would come and and you know see what we were doing and ask about it. Um, so they'd do a vertical jump. They would do uh, at the time uh, when I was there, although it switched towards the end, we did a back squat. Um, so it was a percentage um, of your weight body weight. Um, we did planks forward and both sides. Um, we did push-ups for time, typical two-minute push-up test. Um, and then 
our conditioning uh, and a, sorry, a weighted pull up. And then we did a 300 meter sprint. So it was just an all sprint and then a multi-stage fit beep test for, uh, you know, aerobic conditioning. Um, and they did that all in the same day. Uh, the push, the pull up test was with a 40 pound weight vest on. I'll also add that in. Um, so, you know, these guys and gals, uh, we had one female on the SWAT team, uh, during my time there, she's still on it. She is, uh, as much of a pipe hitter as anybody. Um, it was awesome to see. And, and, you know, I think her best was six reps with a 40 pound weight vest, which I know a lot of men can't do that. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, now what did they, they observe? Because I, you know, with with some of the issues we're seeing in law enforcement, I think some of that's a lack of ownership of the individual. Some of it's a lack of the bar being set by the administration or the the you know horrendous um, equation of the two put together. But and and I've I've witnessed in my career the departments that set the bar very high physically. You know, the training standards just produced great great firefighters. And then conversely, the one my last one where the bar was in a hole they dug in the ground <laughs> it was it was literally people that you would not want at your house fire so some of them some great people were there despite the environment but um so what did, did the uh the SWAT team observe once they brought in uh TSAC principles and then changed that entry test oh yeah i mean they they went you know it was a skyrocket situation i mean again got people you know guys on the team who had had back problems in the past or, or other shoulder problems, you know, we're now having someone that could work around any nagging injuries that they might have have. Or again, you know, that's the other tactical professional thing is that, you know, we're talking about potentially now working with people in their 30s and into their 40s. Uh, and, and some of these guys, you know, gals might be um, new to training this way. So now it's about, well, wait a minute, we can't just... You know, it's not like a 19-year-old college kid. We can't kind of just throw anything at them and they're going to get better, right? We have to be very specific. So, um, you know, they had decrease in back pain. They had, you know, more time on the job, you know, getting they were getting into other sorts of fitness, uh, you know, whether it be mountain biking or all kinds of different things that they like to do and then, you know, could keep them healthy. So it was a game changer all around, you know, not just from the workman's comp uh issues that they now weren't having anymore yeah and it seems to me and i've had this conversation with numerous people literally from all over the world from the uk australia you know the the u.s that when people raise the standards not lower them n not only does you know the the ability of everyone improve this seems like the injury you know reduces as well but also it makes it more desirable for that position and you start attracting the people that you would want wearing that uniform Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I think the the retention, too, of that um, team was, you know, really outstanding. They, they really, you know, would only have someone rotate on, you know, if someone was promoted to sergeant or, um, you know, I know a couple of them guys went on to be detectives or in, on to special uh, attachments to the DEA and just, you know, really cool professional opportunities. 
That's brilliant to hear. Okay, well then you you mentioned strongman. I know that you actually organized and ran a strongman competition yourself. Um, when I do some of the training with with my first responders, and when I say my you know, where I worked when I organized that, um, I found a lot of strongman movements very applicable to the fire service. A lot of carries, sled pushes and pulls that mimicked people or hose lines. Um, what is what are some of your favorite movements to to work on the strength and conditioning of some of the tactical athletes that you've worked with in the past? Yeah, I mean, I love strongman type stuff for um, for a lot of tactical professionals. One, I think it's, you know, it breaks the monotony of just straight, you know, gym workouts, for lack of a better term. But um, there's typically a lot of uh, strength endurance and, and muscular endurance and strongman and those kind of sports, uh, a lot of grip strength. So again, you know, having to maintain power or strength over, you know, extended period of time, not just the one arm or one RM rep or something like that. Um, being able to drag someone, right. Uh, you know, or pick them up, like again, like a deadlift, um, being able to do it multiple times. But, you know, like I said, grip strength is huge in, in all avenues. I mean, uh, you know, I think grip strength and VO2 max are also two of the biggest things that we see in a lot of longevity, um, studies and, and saying those are key indicators for, you know, people that, uh, live a long time. So, you know, the, the application of that kind of stuff, um, like I said, the secondary part to it, it's typically more fun. Um, if you live in somewhere fantastic like Colorado, you know, you can train outdoors and, and take advantage of being outside with it. And like at the NSCA headquarters, they have such a great facility with the turf field attached to the weight room. Um, there was just, we, we would typically do a lot of kind of circuits or different conditioning things outside that, to make it a little bit, you know, more specific and and you know i don't love the word functional but like in, in terms of function being realistic to the real world that's what i would say the application was for those types of movements brilliant now with a lot of those movements they do mimic there is that kind of specificity to it are there any exercises that you love that may not be immediately obvious to some of those professions but you think lay a good foundation for you know these professions that will be listening right now uh, you know, I mean, I, I kind of alluded to it. I think deadlift, you know, it, it, you know, you're, you know, the firefighters or, or police officers or other tactical professionals might often have to pick someone up off the ground or drag them. Um, and, and the deadlift is about as specific of a movement as that gets. Um, again, sled dragging and pushing, you know, there's a lot of different times we're going to have to drag a hose or pull a hose and run with it. Um, so, you know, the, the sled dragging and so many variations with different attachments are great. Um, you know, I think again, anything that challenges your grip, um, it's going to help your grip strength for whether that's grabbing an implement that you're working with or, you know, grabbing someone's wrist or, you know, just, uh, being able to pick something up if you need to carry more than one thing and, and run with it. So, you know, there's so many farmers carries are such a great application and, and then again, it, it just gets to be more fun in your training. If you can add a little more, um, kind of less mundane exercises into it. Yeah. Now, what about from the VO2 max side? Obviously, like you said, there's there's a muscular endurance component in a lot of the um, the strongman stuff. Are there any more aerobic based movements that you like to use for that profession? Um, we would 
we would typically do more um, kind of intermittent fitness uh, running. So we would also, uh, like I said, we tested the beep test. Um, but again, you know, and I and I said they typically wouldn't have to run very far. But at the same time, you know, having a better aerobic base kind of allows everything to be better. So. You know, I think that's an important aspect to not overlook and, and you can turn, you can train that way, you know, in a lot of different circuits or, you know, in strongman, you call them medleys where it's like two, two to four different movements that are back to back to back. So we might do a tire flip for 50 feet and then we have a backward sled drag and then we do, you know, a stone carry for 50 feet and you're kind of do those all back to back to back. So you're kind of getting that metabolic hit and you're getting a conditioning effect um, that, that gives you kind of more bang for your buck and now going to some of the sports that you trained obviously ice hockey is very explosive and then there's a there's a um, an impact element to that and then rugby obviously is a lot longer a game you don't they're not rotating the players through like we do in some of the other sports but again the physical contact is a huge component are there any kind of training principles from those athletes that you think would also carry over well to especially law enforcement who literally will be running and tackling people the same way right right yeah no totally and in my first rugby coach there Norwich he actually the, the analogy he said he said he said actually rugby in his eyes was really uh, a lot of a combination of basketball and wrestling you know except for a more prolonged period of time like without as many changes um and so i think those you know you have to be fit in anaerobic bursts and so it's important to be able to be explosive in in, in bursts of speed and bursts of uh movement um grip strength uh strong shoulders you know again in hockey you have violent collisions and a lot of times you know the injuries might be from you know getting smashed into the boards or having your arm out or stick out in the wrong place the wrong time um but you know all of those things that i kind of alluded to with with um deadlifts and strongman carries and loaded carries and you know things like that that are going to challenge your grip strength are, are are for both rugby and ice hockey just such great great ways to train such important ways all right now just this is a side note you just kind of made me think for a second um rugby obviously you have all that impact with zero pads maybe a jock strap if you're lucky <laughs> and a mat and a, maybe a gum shield um and then obviously hockey you know it's they've got the more the the pads now i mean not a few decades ago but the injuries some of those those men get you know, there's mainly the male hockey games that i've ever watched um they're both those sports professionals you know sports uh athletes male and female just seem to be incredibly tough is there any kind of truth to the element that because it's such a high contact sport that the pain threshold is is raised up to a point where we have hockey players literally lose three teeth and then come back on the ice or <laughs> yeah i mean i think i i think when you've played a sport like that your whole life and, and it's kind of that it's survival of the fittest right like you you know to be able to play at that nhl level you have to be able to grind and you have to be able to tough be tough and it and it does it weeds out the people that can't uh you know can't handle that demand um and obviously physical fitness training has has helped uh increase the longevity of those types of people but but i think there's a lot to be said for you know knowing what that's like and knowing what it's like to 
to be uh, hurt maybe versus injured, right? Hurt where, you know, maybe they know, well, this isn't really this, this bad. Like I know that this isn't going to, you know, take me out for a period of time so I could still play versus when they know, nope, I am messed up. I can't keep going. And then when you know when a tough guy says that, that there's something seriously wrong. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because it's, it's an interesting thing where we've seen in some of the um, uh, entry standards, again, getting lowered and lowered, and then even the, the probation or the, the orientation period. So when we're being trained by the, by that specific department that, you know, now people are worried, oh, don't push them too hard, you know, don't train in the heat. And to me, that we need that element of pain and suffering that's the crucible that on the other side, that's the men and women that you actually want. But if you don't test them and put them through a version of hell, then you're not going to find the best police and fire. And you may end up with a George Floyd or, you know, whatever other situation because you haven't applied pressure to these candidates to see if they can actually perform when the shit hits the fan. Yeah. And I mean, I can, we go down a whole wormhole of, you know, how, how little training that they're given these days, you know, and, and, you know, how probably longer training would, would make such a bigger difference. Um, but you know, when, when your fitness is extremely poor, your stress is going to be higher. Your decision-making is going to be worse. You know, I mean, all, just all of those things. And, and I, you know, the quote I think of when you were saying that is, you know, you, uh, you don't know how far you can go until you've gone too far. Um, and, and that's why I think, you know, some, when you think about like the special forces selection and, and buds and, you know, training like that, where, you know, it's, it's not a, it's not a six week course that you're going through or, you know, an, it, a Monday through Friday kind of deal, like, you know, where, you, where it's like, where you're getting yourself tested every single day for every day of that training, um, and put to the test, you know that when you do come into real life situations you're ready for it yeah and i agree i was very very lucky that just by a twist of fate my very first fire department we ended up being trained for three months because it was a non-certified class so they split up the people that already had the pieces of paper and then sent the rest of them off to, to fire school and emt school so they basically beat the hell out of us for three months and it's the first time they'd ever had a class like that but um it was amazing and we weeded out some people and the rest of us you know clawed our way through but it set the bar for my career and you know 14 years later um i still remember every every damn thing they taught because it hurt so much yeah yeah it's great brilliant all right well then um flipping it around to the other side we, we talked about you know the pressure and the training a big, big conversation I think that so many people underestimate is the recovery side. So coming from, let's going back to, to your sporting athletes now, tell me the importance you put on them with recovery and then I'd really love to explore the area of sleep with performance as well. Yeah, it's such a huge one, you know, and I mean, even in the last decade, I think that we're as strength and conditioning professionals kind of realizing how much, how much more we can get out of people that are fully recovered and, and better recovered. And again, my buddy, Matt Wenning that you had on here not too long ago, you know, he said, it's not about how hard you can train. It's about how good you can recover. Um, 
and and that's why he's had such great success as a as a lifter himself you know getting to be almost 40 now and really having no serious injury you know with the amount of stress that he's put on his body um, because he's learned to to know when to take time off and deload it properly um, and and recover better whether that be you know whatever methods and and there's so many out there whether it's um, you know, mobility and flexibility and, and yoga and meditation and mindfulness now that we've, you know, there's a whole, that's a whole nother rabbit hole that we could go down. Um, but like you said, you're hitting the nail on the head with sleep and with college athletes. I think that's kind of our biggest bang for our buck is if we could get kids to get it, to be able to get good restful sleep. Um, we're, we're dealing with such a better, uh, chance of, uh, improving their athletic ability and just having a all around, you know, better prepared athlete. Yeah, no, I agree a hundred percent. Now I want to go off on another tangent because I think this is about the right place to slot it in. You were the head of strength and conditioning at NSCA. You, you know, are, are now coaching at a, a high level college. Um, what is your perception on the last four months as far as the the covid and the pandemic and the reason i ask me personally i'm not trying to load this question i saw it when it first happened as an amazing opportunity to look at the ill health of a lot of our uh, population and begin to address it and i actually went and worked out this morning and it really pissed me off because i was the only person in the gym so my fellow coach had to coach me on my own and i'm a coach there too um but it just showed me that the fear and the misinformation was far outweighing this amazing opportunity where we should really be filling the gyms right now. People realizing finally that they've got to play catch up. So without yeah. without loading it, what what is your uh, your philosophy on that? Yeah, I mean you're yeah, you're you're already uh, laying the groundwork. It's so you know you're seeing so many people affected because they have some sort of other underlying health issue and so you know it, it's you know the fact that if you had just taken you know if we had taken health and wellness more seriously in this country you know who knows what the numbers could be like and and again the the fact that you've closed down gyms um and and i to some degree okay i get it from you know the the virus is strangely transmitted and we're still not understanding all that. But like the fact that, you know, it's a mental health issue now, right? We know that exercise and, uh, fitness helps people's mental health. Um, and now we're going to make them all quarantine and stay inside their homes and, and not work out. Um, you know, you're adding another layer of stress to a people that are already potentially stressed even more. So, you know, that part of it was tough not having access to gyms was tough um again to to make people kind of have to flip and and think outside the box you know hopefully it'll it'll spur a a fitness boom or whatever we want to call it you know an increased uh reason to to be healthier overall with people um you know it was a it was a it is a crazy time in our life right that we're all probably going to remember i mean i know the big big takeaway for me on the positive side of it was you know and i told our athletes this is like you're probably never going to have this opportunity again in your life to spend time with your family have no distractions and and just train your butt off um you know, if you take that right attitude and, and, and do it. And, and even if it was only body weight and running, 
you still could have gotten farther with that than sitting on the couch and, and being depressed that, you know, you couldn't be hanging out with your friends and stuff like that. So, you know, I, I really tried to make the best out of it and spin it the right way. Um, but at the end of the day, I really, really hope that we, that, you know, more people, uh, can get back into fitness and gym owners, you know, hopefully can get their feet under them again. That they hopefully they haven't lost everything and, and had to close their businesses for good because of this. Um, that's been definitely the, probably the worst part of it for a lot of these people who run small facilities. Yeah. No, I, one of my friends actually, uh, retired from the fire service to become a full-time coach and then this happened and they uh i think for that gym it was the final straw anyway but that was that was what closed their doors and then speaking of the mental health thing i just want to say this because you are in colorado springs um denver fire just lost a female firefighter to suicide alicia benham um you know and, and it's that's the thing that's an epidemic that's going on you know with this and i think that the isolation is compounding that i'm not saying that's the sole reason we have this crisis i think with the the sleep deprivation and some of the other areas that bring us to this field but anyone who's already struggling that's now forced into isolation especially if they don't have a large family unit to be around i think it's a very testing time for them yeah no and i think that's a great point it is and you know i'm sure your listeners know but that is a huge epidemic in, in the firefighting world. Um, and, you know, our friend Annette Zapp, um, who's done a lot with NSCA and Tactical, is, is a big proponent of, the, you know, mental health skills and, and, you know, helping firefighters especially. I mean, one of my best friends from the Navy days, uh, he actually retired from the Navy, but his one of his first jobs uh, was with a fire department in Nor- Norfolk, Virginia Beach area, and, and he said like he was like scott i i couldn't handle it he said because you know i i was assuming that we were just going to fight fires and like we were getting on these calls where people had killed themselves or children were injured and and he said that the stuff he saw he was like i i had to get out of it i just couldn't handle it you know and so if you if you don't have the skills and ability to talk to somebody and get the right counseling um, to, to allow you to do that and just keep doing it and, you know, repressing whatever feelings or thoughts you're having, it, it's not going to be a good ending. No, no. And it's, it's something that we really need to, to take a step back and kind of reverse engineer like, like we did with, with strength and conditioning. You know, we realized that a lot of things that we were taught were wrong, where I think it's the same thing with mental health. I think even you're in a state now that's legalized marijuana. I think that, um, having seen it in Portugal, for example, firsthand, these countries that have decriminalized um, drug addiction is what it is have have made huge differences on mental health on on the crime in the country itself on all these areas um, so I think we have to reverse all the way back to the beginning of last century and start undoing some of the damage that we did back then yeah spot on right well then as far as the the nation's health there's one more area I want to talk about um, what do you suggest would be some of the the changes that we could do as a nation as far as nutrition? Because, I mean, obviously, strength and conditioning is very, very important for our performance, but it's the obesity side that seems to be playing a lot of Americans and other you know developed countries. What are we doing wrong with our food and how do you think we could do better? Yeah, I mean, I think you're, you're, you got to get, like you just said, getting back, you know, over a decade ago, I mean, we, we have to get, you know, it's, it's nutrition in our schools is still not great. Um, I think you have to take it back to 
to children in schools and, and physical education. You know, we've, we've eliminated that at almost every level in our, in our youth sports and youth development. Kids don't play as much as they used to for, you know, a, a multitude of reasons. So, you know, the, the nutrition and just keeping it simple of, um, you know, basic nutrients and, and foods in their most, uh, natural form. Um, you know, it's, it's simple, but yet it's not because, you know, people are trying to cut corners and be on the go and, you know, do all these things at once. And so, you know, going through, you know, maybe, you know, I guess we can't, uh, put all the fast food businesses out of, uh, close all of them because that's really not fair to them either. But, <laughs> Um, you know, I think it's education, you know, and, and it's got to start at a younger age. Um, and, and, uh, you know, I don't know many, you know, elementary schools or high schools that have much nutrition education along with healthy, um, you know, food systems. And, and, you know, obviously if we can have that assisted by the government in some way, shape or form, you know, I mean, I know to some degree, unfortunately, the president's council on physical fitness and sports has, has been shut down or disbanded in this administration. You know, that's a whole nother conversation, but, um, you know, that was uh, a tie in with the NSCA that we had as well. And unfortunately that went away in the last four years. Um, so I think it's gotta be a commitment from the highest levels into the lowest grassroots levels that there possibly are to, to be able to start, you know, educating people so that you don't graduate high school when you're a hundred pounds overweight. Um, because we all know those people and, and, and you know, we know the research shows that a, a, an under an overweight child is much more likely to become an overweight adult. Um, and that's just the reality. Yeah, no, and you hit the nail on the head with another thing that I was talking about today with with one of my fellow coaches is if we have if we suddenly care so much about the the health of the nation and deaths that we're going to shut down the planet, then I want to see the initiatives that start breaking down these mega farms and and putting the power back into these small community farms and organic farming and like you said changing the school food and putting education back in increasing pe um you know maybe taking some of this mandatory stuff that we're seeing and the mandatory outside time mandatory gym time free you know incentives to to join a gym but it's i'm 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 kind of pessimistic because i don't think it is coming from a place of the truly the concern of the nation's health because if it is then we'll see cigarettes disappear from stores and all these other incentives that will save millions of lives right no you're right yeah it, it has to be genuinely you know for the good of humankind and, and yeah we're not seeing that right now yeah all right well then shifting a little bit and I, I don't want this to be a shameless plug but i know that you are connected with wes barnett and joel totoro so um, Jeff Nichols, one of your fellow, you know, CSCSs, um, got me onto Thorn supplements. Now, I'm not a big supplement person usually, but I genuinely, hand on my heart, was amazed not only at their story and, and how long they've been in the medical side, but I use a lot of their products now and absolutely will shout from the, the towers about them. Is, is Thorn a company that you've used in your career? Yeah, totally. Uh, and again, Jeff's a good friend and, and Wes, it was great getting connected with Wes, uh, here through my good friend troll out at uh, yard strength in Hermosa. Um, 
who knows pretty much everybody and said, Hey, you two need to know each other. And, uh, we connected and, and, you know, I knew Wes's background as an Olympian and working at the Olympic training center for so long. And again, for me, you know, in, in working in college athletics, I need to know that the products that we're going to use are safe, uh, and effective and, you know, are, are third party tested and the highest quality ingredients that are available and Thorne checks the boxes on all those. So, you know, being able to connect with Wes and Thorne has been a game changer and it's been great to turn our athletes onto those products and help them, you know, improve their nutrition, sports nutrition side of things as well. Yeah. And have you, have you had any, um, observations of improvement of a performance? Cause again, just from a, a basic, you know, high school level chemistry element, if there is poor efficacy in a lot of these, these, uh, products that we see on the shelves, um, and I'm not demonizing any one brand, but we just know that, you know, there's not a lot of oversight. I personally switched from the exact same multivitamin to multivitamin, probiotic to probiotic, curcumin to curcumin, and I saw a huge change in, in the way I felt. What have you seen as far as a performance, if anything at all? Yeah, I mean, I think for myself, I've definitely noticed the difference in, in how I'm able to perform with using Thorn products over others. But, you know, for me too, working with college kids, a lot of, we'll get asked about supplements and a lot. And, you know, I'm with those, I think with college athletes, I'm a little more skeptical because I want to know that you're going to be able to, uh, get, you're going to sleep eight hours a night and, uh, do the, all the right things, you know, make sure you're telling me you, you, you brush your teeth twice a day consistently before you ask me what kind of creatine you should be taking. So, um, I'm getting a lot of like lifestyle adjustments, uh, in, in college athletes, you know, before we're going to go into any other aspect, but you know, for, for time crunches and, and maybe not the greatest, uh, nutrition, if we can add in some things that are going to help them round it out better then I'm all for that. Brilliant. All right. Well, then I wanted to talk about one more area and then start shifting some closing questions. But another thing that I've seen in the fire service, and this this all comes from a good place. Like I totally understand why people are trying to do this, but you get, you know, the, the kind of peer fitness trainer or whatever kind of umbrella that falls under where some of our men and women will go away, either do a course or maybe, God forbid, they only do an online course and then come away as now being called a coach. And this happens, you know, in, in CrossFit and some other things as well. Um, what is your um, perception of uh, bringing a an actual certified coach into a first responder community versus training one of their own? And then if, oh, as a parallel, what should a certification process look like to take a police officer or firefighter and truly educate them to the point where they now can go and train their men and women? Yeah, I mean, I think, so I think the biggest difference is when you're bringing in an outside certified professional, you know, that's, that's someone who's had extensive education and certification and experience. Um, they're passionate about that, that career field, um, you know, and, and sometimes you'll have that in some of the peer type programs so so some of the people that go through some of these programs and fire police service are are probably very passionate and military about fitness and so 
you know, but not all of them are. And I think that's where the disconnect happens is that, that this is may now just be an, another collateral duty on top of what other, whatever other collateral duty you have. And so it's not something that you're going to really, um, be excited about or, or want to learn more about. And, and like you mentioned, you know, there's some classes that might just be a weekend long, um, and there's, you know, it's, it's hard to, to learn, you know, Olympic lifting. It's impossible to learn Olympic lifting in a two day course. You know, um, you can, you can learn some fundamental things here and there. Um, but you know, I think it's important that it's, it's done by an organization, you know, that is reputable, like again, NSCA, um, and that it's done, you know, through, uh, an accreditation process. So like, you know, there's other, uh, kind of metrics or things being observed in that educational program and standards that are met to, you know, show these learning abilities and these kind of whatever they are, checkpoints or KPIs or whatever you want to call them that, that people can learn. Um, you know, the, the NSCA's tactical certification, um, was designed for those types of people. It, it was, you know, uh, for people with a, uh, high school diploma, not a bachelor's degree because they had, they had in mind people in the military or the police or the fire service that might not have been to a certain level of college, but it might've been a career, you know, um, servant leader in those, in those areas. So, you know, the curriculum is very detailed and, and they have a, uh, actual four or five day hands-on course that puts you through the paces called the practitioner's course. And that's been revamped by, uh, Nate Palin, the head tactical manager there at NSCA now, um, started by Tyler Christensen and, and Nate kind of took over and ran with it. Um, and they've revamped that training process, um, to be more of a, like, um, really hands-on in the trenches, learn on the fly. Jeff, again, Jeff Nichols used to do them out of his facility in Virginia Beach and probably will again with his new facility that he's built. Um, and so you've, you've got, you know, serious, very experienced and educated people passing this information along. Um, but again, I think it comes down to not only education being good material, but, you know, having the right people, if, if that's the route that you're going to go with a kind of peer to peer situation, that it's people that are invested in it. And, and if you're in that department or service or whatever, you know, making, making that part of their job, not just a collateral duty, support them in it, you know, pay for them to go to the tactical conference and pay for the, their membership and pay for the continuing education that they want to do that they get interested in. And, you know, again, I, I, my experience has been that if you're able to show, uh, your boss or, you know, your owner of your gym, um, why it's a benefit to them, uh, they, they'll support that, you know, and again, I may have just been lucky a lot in my career too, but you know, when, when you can show them, Hey, this is why this is going to help us. You know, a lot of times you're going to get that buy-in from them. Yeah, no, I agree a hundred percent. I think that's just it is understanding if you invest in your people on the front end, you're even financially, you're going to save a lot of money on workman's comp and injuries and, you know, mistakes on the job, uh, on, on the back end. So, you know, invest in your people. Absolutely. Brilliant. All right. Well, then I want to touch on one thing before we, we transition. Um, you mentioned about the NSCA committee. Yeah. Yeah. So that was pretty cool. Um, again, one of the biggest, 
uh, pluses when I was making my pros and cons list for actually leaving the NSCA to take my job at Colorado College. Well, one of the biggest pros on my list was actually staying involved with the organization as a volunteer. Um, you know, I was the Vermont State Director before I ended up working there as a volunteer. Um, and I, when I left NSCA to go to Colorado College, that was still very high on my list. I was like, I still want to be very involved. I want to speak at events. I want to do, I want to run for the board of directors someday. Um, so I had the opportunity. There was an opening on the nomination committee and I applied for it and um, ended up getting on the ballot. So the nomination committee selected me and another person to be on the ballot. And then the membership voted on it. And um, a couple of weeks ago, I found out that I was selected. Um, so I really thank any NSCA members that are listening to this uh, for voting for me um, because so the nomination committee has a very important role in the organization and that's finding um, kind of selecting and, and recruiting and networking to find people who are qualified to run for the board of directors and president of the board of directors. So it's an extremely important um, committee that, you know, helps set the leadership at the 30,000 foot level for the organization. So I'm really excited to be involved in that committee and, and the people who are on it are just super people. I, I know all of them. We've already had a, our first kind of meeting. And so it's really exciting um, just to be able to spread the word. I think that's another thing, you know, that I alluded to earlier is that um, getting involved with the organization is to me is really important, but it's also very easy. And I, and I don't know that everybody knows that. I think the NSCA needs to do a better job of letting people know um, that volunteering with the organization is a great way to be involved, whether again, it's at the state level where I started or different committees, um, being involved in the special interest groups, which all have Facebook groups now that you can join and interact with other professionals. Um, I'm also on the executive council for the college coaches special interest group. Um, and it's just a phenomenal chance to network with people and meet people who are like-minded and share ideas and, you know, Hey, what do you guys do there? Well, this is what we do there. And I mean, tell you what, during this whole COVID time, our special interest groups are just, there's a new thread in there every day about an issue that someone has. And, you know, there's 20 responses as to what someone's doing, where they are with their resources. And so I know the tactical group is much like that. Um, and so I just can't say enough about getting involved with the organization in, in any way, shape or form and, and, you know, trying to give back to the profession. Yeah. And I'll second that just from a tactical point of view. I think TSAC is by far the best conference I've ever been to when it comes to strength and conditioning in, in our fields. Um, as anyone who's been there, they probably recognize numerous names from TSAC have been on the show. There's a very obvious reason for that. <laughs> um, but do you know if TSAC, I think was supposed to be in San Antonio this year. And I think this whole COVID thing stopped yeah, it. Do you know if that? Virtual, yep. Yep. So it's all virtual this year, unfortunately. Um, so hopefully that, but it looks again, looks like they're going to do a great job with that. And the NSCA did a phenomenal job during this COVID period uh, to get the conferences uh, moved to virtual. I, uh, I actually spoke at the Vermont uh, virtual clinic from my backyard. I did a live hands-on on my uh, new turf here. It was, uh, it was awesome. And um, they're putting the whole tactical event online. So that's, and I saw an uh, Instagram post for it the other day. So I, I saw the lineup, the speakers look phenomenal too. So it's going to be another outstanding event again, just not in person. 
brilliant. Well, I'll make sure I put a link to that on online. I hope they go back to, to San Antonio next year then because that's where my in-laws live. All right. Well, then transitioning to some closing questions. Um, the first one I'd love to ask everyone is, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be what we've talked about today or something completely different. Um, you know, I, I the book that I've talked a lot of people about and a lot of strength and conditioning coaches is a book by Jim Collins. It's actually a business book called Good to Great. I found a lot of um, parallels in just I think it would work for every profession, but like a lot of light bulbs came on for me in the strength and conditioning profession. Um, another one that I, and I think you know sometimes books hit you at the right time in your life. Uh, it's a book called The Dip by Seth Godin. Um, and again, that one really spoke to me. Um, and, and it was, you know, kind of like the, the gist I'll say of it was, is that, you know, sometimes you're on this plateau and you don't know when the next like step up is going to happen. And sometimes people quit right before that next step up happens. And so, you know, it's, it just, again, it spoke to me at the right time in my life. And that was, has always been something that, um, kind of stuck with me and then another one i'll plug on more of the strength and conditioning side uh is a collaboration that my buddy ron mckee put together called weight room wisdom um and myself and a number i think there was 60 or 50 or 60 of us that all contributed a story to it and so it's all just like um two to three page chapters basically on um again weight room wisdom so a story that you might tell your athletes um that has a relation to life and the bigger picture. So I thought that was a really cool book. Um, kudos to Ron for thinking of the idea. Excellent. Well, I love I love the idea of that one because I think people resonate so much with stories versus you know just a textbook style writing. So I'm sure there are a lot of principles that they can glean from there. Um, okay. So then, what about a movie? Are there any movies that you love? Uh, well, you know, I mean, Top Gun suckered me into joining the Navy and becoming an aircraft director, I'm pretty sure. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, that also dates myself uh, that I'm a pretty big uh, Top Gun guy. Um, I think, you know, let's see any that, you know, I don't it's been so long since I went out to an actual movie. You know, I mean, I, I'm a big kind of uh action uh bank robber type movie so i you know i like a lot of those action adventures whether it be like the italian job or um you know some of the newer ones that have come out that are pretty good the town uh so you know kind of i like the i like the boston uh bank robber movies are always great too <laughs> brilliant all right and then what about uh documentaries any of those that you've seen that you loved uh, you know, I mean, bigger, bigger, stronger, faster that Chris Bell did uh, really opened my eyes to a lot of different things in in the supplement and performance enhancing drug world, and and you know made you think about a lot of the things and people who you look up to. So I think that's an important one. Um, there's there's a lot of great ones out there. Uh, just on you know the the human interest side. I mean. I'm a, you know, I grew up in Michael Jordan's shadow. So, you know, I just watched the dance and that for me, that was like one of the best things I've seen ever. And, um, I heard there's a Dennis Rodman documentary that's like straight all about Rodman. I have not seen it yet, but I, I'm going to have to look it up because I love Rodman. So <laughs> actually, yeah, I keep hearing a dance. I haven't got around to that yet, but I'm, I've got to make sure I watch that too. I love, I love this kind of river of awesome documentaries that are coming out with uh i think netflix and amazon and some of these 
these mediums where they're not slaves to advertising anymore. Absolutely. It's such a great time. Yeah. Brilliant. All right. Well, the next question, is there a person that you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders and military of the world? Uh, as a guest, have you had Annette Zapp on here already? I don't know. I, I haven't. Was... We are connected okay. online, but yeah, I haven't. Uh, I would I would say she's got to be uh, my top pick, especially for the population that you're talking about. Perfect. Excellent. All right. I think so. secondly, follow that up with Nate Palin, the guy who's the tactical manager at NSCA right now. Solid, solid guy. He was a ranger uh, in the Army and then became a strength coach with Special Forces as well and now is heading up the tactical program at NSCA doing some great stuff. Excellent. Yeah, I think they'll be both fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, happy to. All right. Well, then the last question before we make sure people know where to find you. What do you do to decompress? Uh, I try and get out into nature as much as possible. Again, living in Colorado Springs, we're super close to the mountains. Um, I try and delete uh, Instagram and Twitter off my phone every now and then for a few days um, and get away, uh, whether that be mountain biking. Um, not a big tent camping guy. I'm kind of I'm kind of a little bit too old to, for sleeping on the ground. I don't know. It just doesn't work for me anymore. <laughs> so, uh, but, but getting out to the mountain towns and spending some time mountain biking and hiking, uh, I take the dogs out as much as I can uh, and just spend some time in nature with, with them every single day that's kind of the morning routine so uh that you know is critical i think to my kind of well-being and mental health yeah another area that i think that people have misunderstood with this isolation it doesn't mean you have to stay in your house get outside and you know get some vitamin d on your skin absolutely all right well then the last uh, question then how can people find you if they want to reach out to you uh, i would say Instagram at Coach Caulfield is probably the where I spend the majority of my t social media time. Uh, I do have Twitter at Scott Caulfield. Um, that I I definitely kind of search news and and you know information more on there. But I definitely is and I made, my Instagram is open and I love to connect with people on there and I answer all my direct messages and so that you know I really feel that's important and to help kind of again just spread the spread the um knowledge and and experience that i've had to others because so many people have helped me along the way brilliant well i just want to say thank you so much i mean your name has come up multiple times when i've spoken to other people um and you know i i really wanted to make make this connection and and get your your perception especially coming from not only the nsca which i think is definitely in my opinion you know the best route to really learning how to be a good coach and whether you're in the sporting performance world or or the tactical world um you know but then obviously your your career of coaching as well so thank you for being so generous with your time today yeah i appreciate you having me on looking forward to seeing this and helping spread the word i've been impressed by your podcast so keep up the good work 